Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the Fighting on Film podcast, the podcast all about classic and obscure war movies, from the Normandy landings to the days of chivalry and swords. If it's been captured on film, we're going to try and cover it. I'm Robbie of RM Military History. I'm Matthew Moss of Historical Firearms and the Armourer's Bench. December 2021, a podcasting duo set themselves a mission to watch and review all four of the films in the Dirty Dozen franchise. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Dirty Dozen December on Fighting on Film. Hello, welcome back to Fighting on Film. As the festive jingle says there, it's Dirty Dozen December and we're going to be covering all of the Dirty Dozen films this month. And what better way to kick off the festive fun than getting stuck into the 1967 classic that kicked it all off. And we're joined this week by Dwayne Epstein, who has written a biography of Lee Marvin called Lee Marvin Point Blank. Dwayne, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm so pleased to have you and you're your insight into Lee Marvin is going to be so interesting on this show. I just know it is. So, Matt, do you want to, I'm sure people are very well aware of what The Dirty Dozen is about, but give people a little bit of a rundown and then we can get into the cast, the production, all that good stuff. If you aren't familiar with The Dirty Dozen thus far and you're listening to a war movie podcast, then I guess you've got a bit of catching up to do because it's one of the all-time classics, isn't it, really? Indeed. It's the original Men on a Mission film, Um it sees a group of uh, convicted military criminals uh, that are sentenced to either death or long prison sentences sent on a basically a suicide mission behind enemy lines prior to D-Day, headed by Lee Marvin. And it has an all-star cast. We've got Charlie Bronson, Ernest Borgnine, Jim Brown, got to name a few, a young Donald Sutherland, Clint Walker, Robert Webber. Telly Savalas. Telly Savalas. John Cassavetes. We're going to dive into the cast a little bit more in a moment, but that's about it. They they go on this mission, and it it's a pretty shocking mission in the end of things. They're, they're basically tasked with killing as much of the Nazi high command as they possibly can. And then some. Pretty much. Dwayne, you're a Lee Marvin expert, so I wonder, just to set some context for the listeners, how big is Lee Marvin's star shining as we go into the, the, the production of the movie? Well, at the time he was um, asked to be in the film, he had already done Kapaloo. It was in theaters. Um, he had just finished shooting another great movie called The Professionals. It was a Western. Um, and uh, at, during the filming of The Dirty Dozen, Robert Aldridge allowed him to fly, because the movie was filmed in England, he allowed him to fly back to L.A. for the Academy Awards, and he picked up an Oscar. He won for Capaloo, and then he flew back to finish filming The Dirty Dozen. And I'd like to point out where he was at the time. He was in this wonderful place in terms of the films he made in a short period of time from about the early to mid-60s to the early 70s, 
where he did a string of incredibly great action films and probably The Dirty Dozen was the best of them. But that aside, when The Dirty Dozen came out in uh, mid-1967, he had two films in theaters at the same time. He had that and he had Point Blank. And consequently, he was the, it made him the number one male box office star in the country. I don't know where he was in terms of international popularity, probably pretty high, but he was it. And The Dirty Dozen, consequently, was also the number one box office film of the year. And it got mixed reviews because it was extremely controversial, especially the ending um, that you had mentioned a moment ago, Max. Um, and a lot of people believe that because Robert Aldridge, the director, did not want to change the ending in any way, it may have robbed him of, of an Oscar nomination because he was probably on track to get a best, best director Oscar nomination, probably would have won, although it was a very, uh, Frank Sinatra would say it was a very good year. Um, <laughs> the year of The Graduate, uh, Bonnie and Clyde, Cool Hand Luke, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, a lot of great movies, a lot of classics. And yeah. The Dirty Dozen was the, the most popular of that entire group. I mean, wow. Well, what can you say there, really? So, Matt, do you want to want to talk more about the cast for us? Sure. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it's a pretty strong cast in terms of, of war movies of those yeah. of that era, isn't it? Really, you've got Lee Marvin, who is at his peak. He's a powerhouse in this. He 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 honestly is the standout in this. But it is a strong cast. I I love Charlie Bronson's um, role in this as well as Vladislav. He's great. And Jim Brown, I, I, this, these are just my personal favorites I'm picking up, but I, we'll go into the rest of them in a moment. I really like Jim Brown's role in this, and I, th I think if I'm right, this is the movie that Jim Brown retired from NFL for, isn't it? Apparently so. Yes, indeed, it is. During the making of the movie, he held a press conference announcing his retirement because the owner of the Cleveland Browns, I believe his name was Art Modell, I think, had mm -hmm. um, the filming production schedule went longer because of the amount of rain that was going on. And they um, in England, surely not. Yeah, what a shock, right? <laughs> Art Modell said that if Jim Brown isn't back on time in America to start practice, he's going to be fined like I think like a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars a day, something like that. And Jim Brown said, All right, fine, I quit, I retire. And he's on the record as saying it didn't bother him to retire, he just didn't like getting an ultimatum and yeah. being told, you know. If you don't, we're going to do this kind of deal. He hated that. So he just up and retired mm -hmm. while the movie was being made. It wasn't his first film, by the way. He had made a, a small budget Western like a year or two before called Real Conchos. But right. once he was in The Dirty Dozen, and The Dirty Dozen was such a hit, there's an amazing thing about that movie in that it launched a, the major careers of so many people that were in it. From that film on, Jim Brown became a kind of a, what's the word I'm looking for? An icon in terms of black cinema. There had never been a, a, you know, a screen presence like his in American films before. And there was Sidney Poitier, there was Woody Strode, there was Paul Robeson. And Sidney Poitier always kind of represented a rather sophisticated, sophisticated intellectual um, mm. African-American. Woody Strode was strong and noble, whom by the way, I got to know and was a wonderful, wonderful guy. But Jim wow. Brown was the first black presence on screen to say, this is who I am. I'm going to be tough. I'm going to be macho and masculine. And if you don't like it, too damn bad. That's your problem. He was probably American cinema's first black badass. That would be the best way to say it. And, yeah. you know, Charles Bronson was always a second lead for almost his entire career. But after The Dirty Dozen, he stayed in Europe and made some more films. And those films he made in Europe were some of the best films he ever made. And you know, Once Upon a Time in the West, Right Around the Rain, mm. um, Someone Behind the Door, Cold Sweat. It launched his superstardom with The Dirty Dozen. Um, John Cassavetes, who is my personal favorite in the film, other than Marvin, John Cassavetes had been kind of blacklisted in Hollywood for the last couple of years because he got in a major fight with Stanley Kramer, and consequently, he couldn't get any work. When he got talked into doing The Dirty Dozen, he not only got a Best, Acting, a Best Supporting Actor Oscar nomination, he, it allowed him to finish and the film he had been working on, but he couldn't get uh, financing for a movie called Faces, which also got several Oscar nominations. And then it launched his independent filmmaking career. And he's often been called the father of American independent film. So, you know, the result of the Dirty Dozen on people's careers was fascinating to me. And they went off like rockets. It was great. Yeah. 
I mean, look at Donald Sutherland, what, what he goes on to do. He's another good example. Donald Sutherland said, he'd said in interviews that it, it was his performance in The Dirty Dozen that got a few years later, but it was directly responsible for him getting the lead in the movie MASH, which of course made him a star. Exactly. I think the, the director of the, the recent Suicide Squad movie, James Gunn, he said in a press interview that this movie is like the Suicide Squad of its day. It's that ensemble. Oh, absolutely. Having these big ensemble casts with your Avengers films and, and, and your superhero movies. But I guess we're back in the 60s. This is quite a rare event. So to get to get all these big names in a film, you can see why it's so heralded and beloved. Well, you know, a couple of things, just real quick, if I may. You mentioned, uh, sure. you mentioned James Gunn a moment ago and also um, a writer-director named David Ayer. They both said Suicide Squad was a direct result, a, a, a directly influenced by The Dirty Dozen. And about a year or two ago, it had been announced that they were going to do a remake of The Dirty Dozen. Um, I don't know where it's at at this point, but that was announced. Now, in terms of big-budgeted big all-male ensemble cast. There were a lot of them in the 60s. I mean, it might have started with like The Longest Day. Um, and then, oh, of course. Yeah, sorry. Where, where am I thinking? Yeah. No, no, that's that's quite all right. And they were, you know, the 60s was an interesting time period for, I don't want to call them buddy films or macho films, but but the war, World War II was an extremely popular subject. There was a Orion's Express, Where Eagles Dare, uh, the Devil's Brigade, which was a direct ripoff of The Dirty Dozen. And yeah. there was a small film that Roger Corman, I don't know if you're familiar with Roger Corman, had made mm -hmm. called Secret Invasion. And according to Corman, the plot was almost identical to The Dirty Dozen. And he claims the producers of The Dirty Dozen held up the release of the film for a year so as to avoid any confusion with the film that he made. Now, oh, I, don't, wow. I don't know if that's necessarily true or not, but it's an interesting... Uh, Apocryphal mm. story, if it is. And by the way, before I go any further, I just wanted to point out, as I had mentioned to you gentlemen, two or three weeks ago, the timing of this is amazing. About two or three weeks ago, I just got the go-ahead for a book publishing deal about the making of the Dirty Dozen. It's called Killing Generals. Um, Great name. For the most obvious of reasons. Yeah, I, it, it's Bronson's line at the end, isn't it? You it's bet. just, it's a, it's one of the best lines in the film. Boy, oh boy. Killing generals can get to be a habit with me. <laughs> I, I love that line. I think my uh, my favorite little tidbit for before we go into production is that I, I only re recently realized it, but the the movie Small Soldiers, the the commando elite, are voiced by the surviving cast, and I just <laughs> yeah. oh, I just love that film when I was little. But it, to now know that it was the, most of the dirty dozen, it, it sort of really makes sense now. Yeah, I have to tell you a great story about that. I I was able to interview Clint Walker, and. Super nice guy also. Clint Walker told me that story about how when they were making The Dirty Dozen, Trini Lopez asked for more money and he got written out of the film, as you know. And what happened was many years later, when they were doing Small Soldiers, Clint Walker told me this, when they were doing Small Soldiers, uh, the director, Joe Dante, approached the surviving cast members of The Dirty Dozen to do the voices. And um, Lee Marvin had already passed, so Tommy Lee Jones, who could practically be considered a Lee Marvin lookalike, he did the lead character voice. And so Clint Walker said, and I asked him, how come Trini Lopez wasn't asked? And Clint Walker said, we did ask. He just said no, because he wanted more money. It's like, you think the guy would learn from his mistakes. <laughs> but they did They no. did get Ernest Borgnine, they did get Jim Brown and George Kennedy and Clint Walker, yeah. and it's and it's wonderful. And the, this, is it the the, the, the lads from Spinal Tap with the Gorgonites. <laughs> I remember right, yes. <laughs> And uh, Frank Langella, the, uh, the great character actor, play, played the new Gorgonite. It. Yeah, that's it. So, I mean, we'll just quickly run through production then, because it, it's, it's a great, you know, the, the crew of the movie is just fantastic as well. So you've got the director, uh, Robert Aldrich. He's known for Sahara, Too Late the Hero. He'd worked with Lee Marvin on Attack as well. Mm -hmm. uh, screenplay by... Um, Nanali Johnson and Lucas Heller, cinematography, Edward uh, Safi, I think, uh, music by Frank Dievol, and it's based on a book from 1965 uh, by Erwin Nathanson, but it was also inspired by the 101st Airborne's demolition specialists, and they were known as the uh, Filthy 13, and you see the famous photo of them shaving their hair into mohawks with the war paint on, you know, one of those sort of iconic images of the, of the Normandy campaign from the American paratroopers' point of view. Um, filmed for $4.5 million. 
and it grosses uh, 45.3. So that's no, you know, that's quite a big profit for um, Academy Award nominations. And it wins uh, for Best Sound Effects by uh, John Poyner. I think that's how you say that one. Um, and I have a retro review uh, this week from the Daily Mirror, the British newspaper, uh, from Friday, the 22nd of September, 1967. The Reluctant Heroes. And American brass hats considered the mission they wanted carried out just before D-Day was too dangerous for decent GIs. So 12 soldiers under sentence of death or awaiting long terms of imprisonment were recruited for the task. This ingenious idea is a springboard for a lot of exciting, if at times laughably incredible adventures in the Dirty Dozen. Lee Marvin is excellently cast as Major John Reisman, a chip on the epaulette officer with no time for conventional army discipline. Reisman is considered just the man to turn the 12 criminals into a dedicated crowd killers. They're tasked to parachute into Occupy France and wipe out a score of high-ranking Nazis. They managed to make a highly entertaining slice of wartime heroics. Sums it up, really. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> it really does. Filmed in England, mainly, um, on the MGM studios in, in Boreham Wood. Um, and the town that is used for the training montage is the town of Aldbury. And the scene where they do their parachute training and, and Sutherland uh, makes a mockery of uh, Robert Ryan's breed um, is uh, Ariette Hendon. It's funny, just before we started this, I just got off the phone with the film's producer. He's still alive. Uh, oh, wow. He's, 90, he's 93 years old, Ken Hyman, and uh, Sharp as Attack. Great story. It was his idea to film it in London. He said it would not be cost effective to film it in, uh, in California, even though a lot of... Uh, it's not a matter of being cost effective. Let me let me uh, restate that. It was sure. it would it would be more believable to film it in England, where where in California, you know, the reason why Hollywood was chosen as a movie making capital was because there's so many different environments here in California, uh, mountains, forests, beaches, you name it. Um, sure. But for the purposes of the movie, the Dirty Dozen, he just thought you know England England would would be best, and the majority of it was filmed there. And um, he tells some great stories about the making of the movie. Super nice guy, too, by the mm. way. Of course, because obviously at that time in the war, the, the Americans are there staging, preparing, training for the Normandy invasion. So it makes complete sense. And I think it it, it didn't really hit me until I've seen it a few times. But it actually just, it looks great as well. Like all those countryside shots look really nice. Absolutely. You know, you've got the, the prison looks really imposing and, you know, when they're out in that field in the middle of nowhere, it, it, it works. You know, it, it really looks great. Yeah, um, the, the mise en scene's quite good. But you get that establishing shot of of Marvin arriving at the at the at the prison, and there's a really there's some nice shots of the exterior. And then when he's arriving to speak to to Borgnine's character, Major General uh, Warden, you get that great street shot, and it yeah. it's got um, yeah, and they got you know, the, the, you know, the barrage balloons in the background, and yeah, it it's it's very believable. It is. It, they, they go to a little bit more lengths than, you know, some of the films of the period, that's for sure. Sure. Yes. Uh, so, Dwayne, when they were filming the movie, did they know that they wanted to, to have such an elongated sort of like training, um, you know, element to the film? As, as far, yes, as far as I know, indeed. And that served a very strong purpose. And I have to tell you, um, one of the problems a lot of film critics had with the film when it came out wasn't just a matter of a violent ending. It was a matter of plausibility. And they raised that issue several times in the film itself mm. with some of the dialogue in that it just was not believable that the, you know, the army would spend so much time and energy training a bunch of psychopaths. You know, they're <laughs> psychopaths. You're not going to be able to train these guys. So uh, especially uh, the war games sequence, which is how they tried, you know, the characters prove themselves. That mm, also yeah. stretched believability a certain amount as well in that, they just broke all the rules. That's all they did. They were changing the <laughs> color bands. Uh, they lied about where they were going and what they were doing. They stole stuff. And that wasn't the purpose of the war games. However, what it did was it bonded them as a unit and it allowed the brass to realize these guys are capable. Um, they can do what we want them to do and they can probably do it better than commandos that we already have. And they're thinking, I'm guessing, their thinking is if we use highly trained commandos to go in into a suicide mission, we're going to waste a lot of men. Why not use a bunch of guys who aren't going to be worth much anyway? We don't like them. We, you know, they're due to be executed. 
So maybe that was the thinking. But if you remember early on in the film, Lee Marvin says to Ernest Borgnine when he first gets uh, um, told about what the mission, he says, I don't think it's a good idea to let it out. That's um, a, a little uh, assumption I've had for a long time. And Borgnine said, would you mind sharing that with us? And Marvin says, yeah, that we're work that somewhere up there we're working for a raving lunatic. That that you know this whole idea is insane. And then after Marvin leaves, Borgnett says to Robert Weber, he's right about one thing: somebody up there is absolutely nuts. <laughs> that that it's all, <laughs> the whole premise is nuts, but they make it work. It makes stretch mm. believability, but they make it work. Oh yeah, you can you can definitely sort of imagine this sort of thing happening. Uh, so many incredible things happen during the war that them gathering a dozen hardened criminals some of them psychopaths you can imagine that going down yeah. someone going we we need we've got a mission and we need a particular type of soldier to do this obviously with with such a long training sequence and we get we get to know maybe five of the characters quite well and the rest are sort of background actors and everyone gets like one or two scenes even the lower down people like like tom busby's uh Vladek and and such but the the key characters are uh, Bronson's character, Jim Brown's character, John Cassavetes, um, to a degree, uh, Richard Jekyll's, uh, and, and then obviously Telly Savalas is impressive as a psychopath. Yeah. He, he carries that so well, doesn't he? It's interesting because in the book, his character, Archer Maggot, Maggot was in the book a Southern racist. However, mm. there were also two other characters, one who was a sexual deviant, and another who was a religious fanatic. And what they did in the movie was they combined all three of those characteristics mm, into one character, yeah. in the maggot. And Telly Savalos plays it exactly as he should. He's, he's a racist, sexually deviant religious fanatic. Yeah. <laughs> all, all in one what, guy. What a mix. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. But I think it's, for me, it's like, it's a little bit far removed because he's like a comedic guy. So it was for me, like watching him, and I'd seen him in mainly comedic roles, you know, like, you know, Big Joe and, and the, the tank commander he plays in Battle of the, of the Bulge. Uh, oh, so then, also in, in Kelly's Heroes, too. Yeah, of course, yeah. of course, yeah. So then when you see him playing this, oh, this absolute villainous creep, you know, it's, it's such a great turn from Telly. I think I think he's my, I know it's, hard, it's bad to say my favourite because of the sort of heinous crimes the man's committed, but he's like my favourite one of the Dirty Dozen just because of the performance. I, I really like. It's interesting. It's impressive. In <laughs> acting terms, yeah. it really is. Mine is Cassavetes. I think Cassavetes, if it's possible for him to steal such a big, a cast in such a big movie, Cassavetes does it. He commits grand larceny. He steals every single scene he's in. I think he's wonderful. Mm. My favorite character. Yeah, Maybe because I've actually known guys like that. I think we've all, not to that extent, but I think we've all known think you're right. punks in our lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah and true. He's a punk. He's a big ass punk. He just he sticks his nose in where it doesn't belong. He's always, you know, constantly provoking everybody else in the cast, especially Marvin. And yeah. uh, it just, it just he's my favorite. Always has been. Matt, who's your favorite? He doesn't remember. You know what? Uh, it's really hard to pick, to be honest, isn't it? I mean, I uh, we all love Lee Marvin in this movie. I oh, mean, yeah. I, I love Lee Marvin as an actor, but I, you've got to you've got to like think you've got. You've got Clint Walker, who has a really interesting little role, and he he kind of gets sort of forgotten towards the end of the movie. But then you've got George Kennedy as uh, is it Major uh, Ambruster? Uh, yeah, uh, and he, he's he's sort of like friends with with Marvin, and and he brings that slight sort of bemused comedic element to it to it. And it was the well, same year he did Cool Hand Luke, which he did win the Oscar yeah. for. He, he beat out Cassavetes, <laughs> interestingly enough. Wow. And you've got you've got Robert Ryan as well, who who um, I believe was in the professionals with, yes, with Marvin was. as yes, well, was. wasn't he? Yep. Mm. And that and he plays he plays the the stiff the stiff officer so well. Mm. Yeah. You know, yeah. And that scene that scene at the at the the airbase where um, Marvin says to him, "Well, I, I I knew you were stiff, but I didn't know you were emotional too." Yeah. I'm <laughs> paraphrasing there, but yeah. that scene, it's just so good. And and You're really quite and Ryan's face is you? just priceless. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I completely agree. So, chaps, I think we should move on to the alley tally and talk about some of the kit and equipment. Yeah. 
It's time for Ali Tally on Fighting on Film. That reminds me, I want to show you something. Um, sure. I don't know if you guys can see this or not. Here's a copy of my book, by the way. Yep. Yeah. Paperback. Now, one of the first photos, I don't know if you can see that. Mm hmm. Okay. I, I believe that's a grease gun, and that's a scene. In it the, is. Yeah, that's the scene in the movie when Marvin gets the jump on Ryan, who, who mm -hmm. has uh, broken into the camp. Now, I don't know if you can see it, but you see the magazines, uh, the cartridges? Yep. Okay. How one is taped to the other. So when uh -huh. one gets empty, you pop it out and you put it back in again. You turn it around and put it back in. That was Marvin's idea. Ah. Lee, Mar Lee Marvin, yeah, Lee Marvin had been in the Marines in World War II. Yes, he, of course. He was he, he was wounded on Saipan, so he knew weaponry very very well. As a matter of fact, on several films he had made, and I'm assuming this would have been one of them as well, he was kind of unofficially put in charge of the weapons that were used in the film, because they were in the in the professionals because they were shooting in the Valley of Fire Desert in Nevada, which was very dusty and dirty and hot. He and a, a, a stuntman friend of his, Tony Eppert, took it upon themselves to keep the guns clean because nobody on the movie set knew how to do it. And uh, I assume he did the same with the Dirty Dozen. Yeah, he's got that great shotgun in, in The Professionals, doesn't he? He's got that um, trench gun. Yeah, right, right, absolutely. Yeah. He knew weapons better probably than any other actor in movie history. And he handled them so well. You know, mm -hmm. he, he could do things with his hands that were perfect for the movies, kind of theatrical. And yet he knew what he was doing and how to be careful what he was doing. He was brilliant that way. So, Dwayne, yes, as as you're the guest, you get first pick. And would you say that the, the grease gun is your pick for the alley telling? Uh, in terms of uh, the props that are used, I would say that or or the half track that was used at the end of the film to go over the bridge. That thing is amazing, man. Oh, yeah, that's a doozy. It's a DB10 uh, SDKF uh, 2.8, I believe. Rob's done his research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think it's funny because they, they choose one of the slowest vehicles in that motor pool to try and get away. And the fact that it's carrying, you know, pulling the uh, the Bofors gun at the back and and Lee Marvin kind of gives gives Franco that look where he's like, really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You believe these guys keep these things locked? And he he finally hotwires one. Apparently, I found out that when they were filming that sequence, there was a great story Ken Hyman told me that it was one of the last scenes they needed to shoot. And Bronson was really, really anxious to get back to California because he was having um, some domestic issues that I don't want to get into. But anyway, Marvin could not be found that day. And Bronson was getting more and more pissed off. Ken Hyman went looking for him and he kind of figured he knew where he'd be because after a day shooting, Marvin always wound up in the same pub. I guess Marvin got the schedule wrong or thought they were done or whatever. But when Hyman went to the pub, he goes, there was Lee. He was sitting on the floor, drunk as can be, singing to himself. <laughs> and he said, I, you know, Ken Hyman told me I crooked my finger at him. And I was like, Lee, you got to have to come with me. And he said, I poured him into the limo. I kept shoving coffee into him. We got to the movie set. Lee fell out of the car. Bronson looked at Marvin and went, Lee, I'm going to fucking kill you. <laughs> he was so pissed <laughs> off. And Ken Hyman ran up to Bronson and he, he told me I had to act like the head of the UN. He said, I put my hands on Bronson's chest and I said, Charlie, Charlie, please don't hit him in the face. We got close ups. Hit him in the body, <laughs> you know, whatever. But don't hit him in the face. So Bronson eventually calmed down. I love and that. somehow they got the shot, and that's really Lee Marvin driving that thing, as drunk yeah. as he was. Thank God it's so slow and cumbersome. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> Absolutely right. For me, it's got to be the it's the chateau set they built that from scratch to blow up, and I mean, by gosh, it goes up, doesn't it? But I think it it just still really holds up. It's that whole practical effects thing over CGI. You know, everything's intentional. It it sells that whole end sequence. I can imagine the you know, the German top brass purloining this beautiful chateau for all their their, their high and mighty. Right. And, and, you know, when it goes up, a satisfying explosion, you know, it's just what you want <laughs> at the end to sort of tee, tee off your big set piece. I mean, that's... You know, that's my, you know what you shouldn't do, pick. though, is what? put your ammunition dump underneath your your headquarters. That's, all, that's always a bad idea. <laughs> minor design flaw, minor design flaw. <laughs> yeah, but not for the Allies. It worked out great for them. <laughs> no, of course, of course it did. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't get away from 
not mentioning that the Germans are using Bedford a uh, Bedford QLT truck and a, and a Bedford QL, and I think both get blown up. I think don't they? One of yes, them they do. Yeah, Clint Walker and um, Al Mancini. That's it. Thank you. They're in that weapons pit at the front, just laying down machine gun fire while everyone else is absolutely giving it pouring some. gasoline down on the Germans. They're just yeah. absolutely slaughtering that relief column. <laughs> Posey in that scene uses a Webley and Scott um, Mark III star signal pistol, which you just don't see a lot of them, do you, Matt? <laughs> oh, the flare, yeah. Yeah, you don't right. see flare guns and single guns, you know, unless they have a specific plot point. And obviously that was a warning that, you know, the Germans yeah. were coming. But yeah, right. Yeah. I think for me, obviously, Dwayne, you've already mentioned the, the, the jungle magged grease gun. And as you say, Iconic. Marvin was a Marine. There were a lot of, you know, former servicemen on this picture. Yes. Robert Weber, Robert Ryan, Telly Savalas, George Kennedy. Ernest Borgnine. Uh, Bronson had been in. Uh, yeah. Borgnine, obviously, in the, the Navy. Navy. Mm. Um, right. Um, Jekyll and, and Clint Walker have both been mentioned Marines. That's right. So everyone's super, you know, believable and on it. Mm. And, you know, everyone else is just having fun being, you know, hardened criminals, I think. And it all works so well. Talking to Ken Hyman, he told me that he also, behind the camera, um, Ken Hyman was a Marine um, mm. in Korea. And he told me, uh, during, during the Korean War, he was stationed in Quantico, Virginia. But he told me that when he approached Marvin about playing the role, Marvin agreed, but then he said, he asked him, weren't you in the service? And Hyman said, yeah. And what rank were you? And Marvin said he was a PFC. Hyman said, I'm a corporal, so I'm going to pull rank on you. When I tell you what to do, you got to listen. He was a corporal. <laughs> <laughs> I love stuff like that. Didn't Lee have trouble sort of like retaining rank? Wasn't he a corporal and then a private and then a corporal and then a private? Yep. I interviewed Lee, Lee's career-long agent um, a few years before he passed away, a gentleman named Meyer Mishkin, and they used to joke about it. Meyer Mishkin said, how long were you in the service for? And he said, I think it was in for like three years, and then uh, before he got wounded, and, and Mishkin said, how come you never got uh, made sergeant? And I think, I think Lee's reaction was, ah, I made sergeant plenty of times. I just kept getting busted. <laughs> that was his comeback. <laughs> love it well it, it shows doesn't it and and as you say the way he holds that grease gun when he hops down off that roof it's mm -hmm. pointed in a safe direction but jesus does he not look cool holding oh. it like on his hip like that yeah it just absolutely it's does. quick it's it's the iconic image of the movie really isn't it it really is i agree completely the combat experience with taping up your magazine like that that's cool in itself but in terms of some other picks from me i would say um an interesting one is the, the the German sniper rifle, which is a K98K, and it has that sort of night vision scope, and that's that's kind of based based on something that was real, but obviously the scope that we see in the film is much smaller than what vampire scope would have been capable of because they were big things. Um, and the, the other thing I, I just love the the little Beretta that um, that Bronson has, and he, he, he when he starts killing Germans quietly. The only, the only other thing, vehicle-wise, would be the, the Daimler Dingo that's mocked up to look like a German fighting vehicle. It's just got a, just a huge <laughs> like lip thing on the top of yeah, it. Yeah, and it's, it's the one that manages to get past Clint Walker. And the, and... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I was just going to ask. I didn't know that that's what it was called. I was going to ask you, since you gentlemen are discussing all these uh, things that were used in the film, has one person in it, and it has like a shield. The German officer yes. is in it. The Daimler Dinger, British armored car, but they've mocked it up as a German oh, one. Oh, Yeah, yeah. They learn something new every day. Cool. I didn't know that that's what it was it's called. It's great to see it, though. Make sure you put that in the book. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> 
you know, and all the all the lads are in there like M43 jackets and stuff. They all look great in it. You know, Lee, I mean, who doesn't look cool in a in a tanker's jacket? You know, it looks yeah. Lee looks cool as in this movie. Well, I have to tell you, aside from knowing weaponry so well, I don't think any other actor looked as looked as good in a uniform as Lee Marvin. Mm, yeah, he does look fantastic, doesn't he? I think that brings us on to faith scenes, doesn't it, really? Hello there. Sorry to interrupt. I wanted to let you know that you can now join our supporting cast over on Patreon. As thanks for your support, you'll be able to help us pick films, submit questions for guests, have first pick on brand new and exclusive merch, and much more. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. So, Dwayne, you're our guest. What's your favourite scene? If you can pick one. Uh, yeah, I've got far too many. One of them is when, uh, well, like I said, pretty much any scene that, uh, that Cassavetti is in. But when, early on, when Bronson and Jim Brown stop him from escaping, when he cuts the barbed wire, he's such a, he's such a bastard oh, yeah. in that scene. What he says to them, you know? So, you know, he looks at Jim Brown, who just slapped the, uh, the wire cutters out of his hand, and Cassavetti looks at Jim Brown and he goes, what is this, Uncle Tom week? I'm like, oh man, he's just begging. He is just begging for an ass kicking. And yep. also, you know, also, you know, the scene with Donald Sutherland when um, he's supposed to be a general and he's inspecting the troops. I found out that Donald Sutherland was a last minute choice to do that. That it was originally, I think, it was either going to be uh, John Cassavetes to do it, or I think maybe Clint Walker. But at the last second. He had uh, Robert Aldridge had seen Donald Sutherland and the way he was reacting, I think, to different things. And he looked at Donald Sutherland and he, and he said, hey, you with the you with the big ears, you want to try doing this? And he did it in rehearsal and Aldridge <laughs> loved it. And it, it's hysterical the way he plays that. I can't imagine anyone else doing that scene. Really? I mean, that's probably the scene that that catapults. Sutherland in this isn't it really that's the film that everyone remember the, the scene everyone remembers from the film and watching everybody else in that scene when he's going up and down and Lee Marvin had instructed you know Reisman had instructed him saying you've seen generals inspect troops just up one lane up one aisle and down the other look walk fast look dumb and act stupid and he keeps stopping and every time he does that you see Lee Marvin kind of go <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. and then he asked one soldier where he's from and just and and makes ne fun of never heard of it that's it's, right it's really great love it it's funny Addison city missouri sir that's and, the one <laughs> yeah and i love it when he turns to robert ryan and he goes mighty pretty colonel mighty pretty but can they fight <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's obviously crazy, you know pinkley the character of pinkley who is an idiot let's face it he's a moron he had seen generals do this before, and that's what he was doing. He was making fun of the guys he had seen do that previously. So, yeah, I love that scene. The band leader in that scene is is also great. Like He needs a, a little shout-out. Not now! Yeah. <laughs> it's classic. It's that classic humour to it. Well, I have to tell you something, too. A friend of mine and I used to watch The Dirty Dozen all the time when, when home video first came out. And he pointed out something about that scene that's a little unsettling. And it's, I, I think it's on purpose. Look at the way Robert Ryan wears his pants. I mean, he's wearing the Ike jacket and he's got tight slacks on, but his pants from the back are a little bit overly tight and you can see his panty line. And I think it's an attempt to try to make him look slightly effeminate next oh. to overly macho Lee Marvin. Interesting. Next time you watch it, check it out. Yeah, he give he gives off a little bit of you know pattern vibes a little bit, doesn't he? You know, he's very very much so. Yeah, those sunglasses are definitely no. not nineteen forties either, though, are they? Bit Ray Banny, aren't they? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, Matt, your favorite scene? My favorite scene is when Lee and Bronson are sort of infiltrating the chateau, and neither of them can speak German. That makes complete sense. Send the guys that don't speak German. Bronson's character is supposed to be able to, but obviously he makes the point that it had been a while since he had actually spoken it. He says early in the film yeah. that um, he grew up, which I think they did this just for him because it was very similar to Bronson's own uh, personal life, that he grew up in a, a, a poor mining town mm. in Pennsylvania. But Bronson's character, Waterslaw, said, well, Lee Marvin asked him, how come you speak German? He said, because my old man was a coal miner in Silesia. He didn't speak German. We, he didn't dig coal. We didn't eat. And that's what, and that's why mm -hmm. he is with Marvin when they infiltrate the chateau. But he proves a couple of occasions he doesn't really know German as well as he thought he does. 
No, they don't. It doesn't say much, that's for sure. So they can't, they kind of get in there and the, there's that receptionist sort of chap on the door that has them signed in the ledger. And he he has he has some great reaction close-ups throughout this whole sequence where it keeps cutting to him. He's like, he's watching them walking through this party and he's yeah. like, this is weird. Like those those two are definitely not yeah. quite right. And he never he never says anything though. He's the, he's one of the guys at the end that sort of get captured. Yeah, Bronson's character and also uh, um, uh, Richard Jekyll Byron, they both get shot in the leg in different sequences. Uh, yes, but they both get wounded. And of the twelve, Bronson is the only survivor. That's a spoiler alert for anybody who hadn't seen the film. Yes, if you've gotten this far and that was the the worst spoiler you've uh, you've had on the podcast, <laughs> then you're in trouble. But yeah, so I mean, I love that scene because they sort of make their way through the chateau and they we get this whole sequence of them putting their bags in the room and then they do that thing that everyone does when they go into a room and they just sort of like stop yeah. and look around the room you know when you get to a hotel is it like room stay there yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like a married couple sort of thing isn't it where they're like yeah no, yeah not bad <laughs> and then they just go they just start, start killing nazis when they go when they go into the uh uh the the party area where everything's going on Bronson, Bron- I love Bronson's line. He has a throwaway line. He picked up a pamphlet or something and he's reading it. And he says to Marvin, gee, I wish I could read this. I think it's dirty. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great line. But there's a lot of like physical acting in that with, with Marvin. And he he's basically he's sat in that chair and the, the drunk German sort of proselytizing to him. And, and Marvin's there like trying not to make eye contact, but sort of mm-hmm. non-committally going, yeah, mm-hmm, mm, until a guy goes away. What about you, Rob? The training sequence, the, the training exercise um, that they do to, before the mission, because there's, there's parts in the movie where I'm thinking, oh, gosh, OK, where are we going here? Because I think sometimes it's a little bit too long in places. But the training sequence is really good for me because they get to prove themselves. So they get to prove not only to the, the army themselves, but they get to prove themselves to the viewer that they can do this death-defying mission. So, you know, they outsmart everyone. They, they're changing of the armbands, the stealing of the ambulance. It's like a heist, you know, that's how I kind of see it. You know, they're Oh, trying it absolutely to... is. Absolutely Yeah, exactly. Is. You know, they're trying oh, to yeah. capture the, yeah. well, it's what Reisman says in the, in the HQ. He goes, you know, we'll knock out Breed. They'll knock out Breed's HQ and capture his entire staff. And that's exactly what they do. Mm-hmm. And they do it with Cunning and Naus. And, you know, Bronson uh, comes through as this sort of NCO type character, shows himself as being dependable everyone else gets their little moment as well. And it's the first time in the movie where you think, you know, these lads might actually be able to pull it off because before that they're sort of bumbling, they're, they haven't shaved, they're angry, reluctant, you know, they, they don't know why, they hate the fact that they've been chosen. And then they do get to prove themselves. And I, I kind of like that Ernest Borgnine sort of, he cottons on halfway through of what they're doing. And he sort of has a little wry chuckle and a smile to himself. And it's sort of where the movie just comes together. Yo, oh, absolutely. But can I point out one thing that's always bothered me about that movie, about that particular sequence? Of course. Borgnine figures out that these guys are not really who they say they are. And he smirks to himself, giggles, and he realizes if he stays there, he's going to be captured too. So he gets up and leaves. Now, yeah. he figures it out because he sees the guys who were supposed to have been wounded. Clint Walker's laying on the stretcher and the other guys are like attending to him. He mm-hmm. sees them take a bunch of stuff out of their pack and they look like, um, at first I always thought they were thermometers. They're not. They're, they're, um, they're what you call it. Detonators. Detonators, thank you. They're detonators. And when, Bra- and when Morgonite sees those detonators, he realizes these guys are not who they say they are. How does that prove it? I, I, I've never been able to figure that out. How are they going to capture the general with, with, his, with a load of detonators? They're not going to blow him well, up, are they? he just knows. He, I think he figures out that, this is, that, that these guys are not who they say they are. And mm. they're, going to, they're going to do something mm-hmm. to breed. And if they're going to do something to breed, I don't want to be around for that because they may capture me too. I think that's what he figures. But how does the detonators give it away? Yeah, I, I, get, I totally get it. But for me, how does, uh, how does Borgnine not know who these guys are? Because surely if he's involved in the mission, he's got a dossier on all these guys and what they've done and who they are. It just... <laughs> Well, he's also agreed to let these guys prove themselves at this divisional exercise. <laughs> so he knows this is going to happen. <laughs> well, if we're, if we're going to mention a bit that doesn't quite make sense, there is um, there's a little line in the, the Chateau sequence where Telly Savalas is getting that lady to scream. Um, and there's, yeah. a, there's a reaction shot from the general and he goes, 
Sounds like someone has pre-invasion nerves. Or ecstasy. Yeah, yeah or ecstasy. Yeah. Um, so at that point, I was like, the Germans, they know there's an invasion coming like within the next 48 hours and they're well, having a party. The only date they could get, Max, the only date they could get. <laughs> it's been planned long in advance. Yeah, I think I think they, they didn't know when the invasion was going to be, but they knew an invasion was coming. That's probably the best way to put it. Yes, that uh, benefit true. of the doubt is that right. true. is is that yeah. definitely yeah. It's you know I, I just I think it's just I think I think that whole training sequence is just fun. It's just a fun part of the film. You know. And speaking and speaking of fun, don't you love that scene when John Cassavetes flips Al Mancini over his shoulder, and then Clint yeah. Walker walks up and he goes, "You're a tough on the fella. You want to try that with me?" And, and Cassavetes <laughs> is like, ha, 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 and he runs away. Yeah. I love great. that. I love the first scene where um, Marvin and, and Casavetes have where he, he yep. confronts him in the mm. prison yard and, you know, Marvin flips yeah. him with such ease. Yeah. That's a cool scene. Go on, Dwayne. What, what other scenes do you love? Because it's guest's prerogative. You can have far more oh, than boy. one or two. Well, in that case, um, that sequence that I just said, the one um, that you pointed out about the training scene. Um, and I, I love at the end when they go through the, uh, and I never thought of this before until fairly recently, when, when they have this celebratory um, dinner the night before they go out for the mission and they're all sitting at a table and Marvin's at the head of the table in the middle and he's standing and then he says, all right, let's go through it again. Number two, the guards are through. You know, Franco goes in where the others have been and they're doing it by the numbers. The way he's standing and the way they're looking at him, mm -hmm. okay? Yeah, he's Jesus, and there's twelve disciples. I knew, I knew as soon as you 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 said that, I I yeah. knew you were going to say that, and yeah, yeah, yeah I yeah. can definitely see it. That hadn't occurred to me until you started started explaining it, and then I thought Dwayne's going to say Last Supper, and you're exactly right. It's got that yeah. exact vibe, doesn't I it? I have to tell you, Aldridge was a genius at uh, the way he would stage certain shots, the way he would film them, and the way it was edited. One of, another favorite sequence, and I got to tell Clint Walker this that when I was a little kid and I first saw the Dirty Dozen. That scene scared the hell out of me. Where he pulled, where he's about to stab Marvin with the knife, because Marvin took the scabbard off, and he keeps goading him and goading him. The way Robert mm -hmm. Aldridge built the suspense there, the way the edits were done, where it, uh, the cuts are coming more and more, you know, quicker. Mm -hmm. Where you see the reaction, and you see Richard Jekyll reach for his sidearm until finally Walker loses it. Stop pushing! When I was a kid. I ran under the table. It scared the hell out of me because wow. he's a frightening looking guy when he gets yeah. mad. Huge fellow. He's an imposing yeah. guy. And, isn't he? and I got to tell Clint Walker yeah. that and he laughed and he went, oh, thank you. Then the scene worked. That's what, that's what we were going for. <laughs> Great. But, yeah, I love that scene. That's a good one. It is good. And it's, it's another scene where like, it just cements Lee Marvin as being this like double hard, larger than life you know, cool ass guy. You know, so he's, he's, not, he's fearless. You know, it's, that's the whole thing I get from him. And he knows the buttons he's pushing, doesn't he? Oh, sure. In, in that scene, and mm -hmm. it, it points it out. There's, there are things that were in the book that were rather lengthy because it's, a, it's, a, it's like a 500-page novel. And yeah, there were things one. that are in the book that didn't necessarily go into the film because it would be too lengthy, but instead they kind of did it in a compacted version, and that would be a real good example of that. Because in the book, they go. Uh, the author Nathanson mm -hmm. goes into the background of every one of the dozen, how they wound up in, you know, what the what the crime was they committed, um, what Reisman had to do to bring them around to uh, become more of a team and a group and what have you. I think it was done brilliantly with just that Clint Walker scene, and you know things like that, as opposed to having hundreds of pages of dialogue explaining it. We do get a couple where that sort of the exposition is, you know, more straightforward and. He meets some of them in the cells, and there's some gorgeous cinematography of looking down through those yeah. grates where they're watching nice. the, you know, because they're on. I assume yeah. they're on suicide watch because they've taken their, their laces and stuff. And there's that scene with with Jim Brown's character, and he explains that he was in like a, mo uh, a racially motivated brawl, and that always strikes me like that's a very sort of contemporary, forward thinking uh, sort of scene absolutely. to include in a in a war movie of this of this decade. Because, you know, he explains that it was self-defense, basically, and it was a racially motivated fight for survival. Well, I can tell you that one of the things in the film that Robert Aldridge did first was that he said, this is a really good movie for 1945, the script. This isn't 1945. It's, not, it's going to come out in 1967. I want it to feel more contemporary. And mm. so 
Several other writers worked on it, including the one who got the credit, Lucas Heller. And one of the best things about the Dirty Dozen, one of the things that makes it last as long as it has, is just exactly what you spoke of. When you hear Jim Brown say, when uh, Lee Marvin says, don't you want to kill Germans? They're the real master race merchants. And Jim Brown said, that's your war, Major, not mine. You want to kill Germans? You kill them. He was almost saying word for word exactly what got Muhammad Ali in trouble and uh, lost his boxing license around the same time because he didn't want to go to Vietnam. That's your war, not mine. And yeah. Aldridge yeah. was ingenious for putting that in the movie. It's a powerful scene and you kind of forget about it when you think about the, the Dirty Dozen because you think of this ensemble cast that went on to such great things and you know they all became household names and it's such a men on a mission movie that it, it you just think mm. of the mission a lot of the time and the initial build-up of the exposition around the characters and then the the training is just something that you don't always think of when you think dirty doesn't you think chateau you think about that scene where lee marvin's on the roof and there's the confrontation with robert ryan um and, and a few others but that that is a powerful scene, and it. I just think that it's it's interesting that Aldridge thought we should put this into something that is, mm. you know, popular media. You betcha. And it is of the time, and it's lasted from that time. Another thing that I love about the film, in terms of themes, is how it's not. I wouldn't go so far as to call the movie pro-war in its point of view, um, other than in the you know, it's it's a pro-war in the sense that there's a lot of action in it, and a lot of the enemy gets killed. Yeah. yeah. True. However, because of yeah. the time in which the film was made at the almost major escalation of the Vietnam War, there was a lot of anti-war and anti-military feelings in the society as a whole. And Aldridge was once again very mm -hmm. smart to include that in the film. There's a brilliant scene early on when Marvin is meeting with uh, Robert Weber and Borgnine and Robert Ryan and when, oh, and George Kennedy is there. And Marvin takes a stand about what they made him do. They made him witness an execution and he doesn't like it. <clears throat> and he said, that's no way to die. Yeah. And, and um, Borgnine says, oh, the hell you say. I know a lot of uh, soldiers that should be killed just that way. And he laughs. And because he laughs, everybody at the table laughs, right? Because he's in charge. He's the general. He's like the CEO of the company. And he, Aldrich, it's Aldrich's way of showing the military is like big business. That you've mm. got to kiss the boss's ass, you got to do what he says, you got to laugh when he laughs, you got to yes him to death, all that stuff. And it's it's a brilliant way to show how anti-military and anti-authoritative first Marvin's character is, and all the other characters that he's in charge of. And you know that's probably one of the reasons why he got chosen to do the uh, uh, the mission. He's a renegade, right? Yeah. And so consequently, they figure a renegade would know how to care, you know get renegades to do what he wants plus they can get rid of him on this suicide mission too and that sense in the film of being anti-authoritative and anti-military that really resonated with audiences in 1967 it was a movie that world war ii veterans liked and it's a movie that you know draft age young men liked and so consequently it was a, it's like that thing i always felt about the movie Patton that you mentioned a moment ago the thing about Patton, aside from being a great movie if you have the point of view of being a hawk, that you're very pro-military, you'll love that movie. If you have the point of view of being a dove and a pacifist, you'll love that movie. And the mm -hmm. fact that that movie was able to walk that dividing line brilliantly is one of the things I loved about the film. I feel the same way about The Dirty Dozen, except The Dirty Dozen is a little bit more, what's the word I'm looking for? Violent. Yeah. There's no other word for it. It's a lot more violent. Mm. <laughs> a bit more, a lot more like very macho. Right. The rumor is the rumor is that John Wayne was first offered the lead role. Of yeah, I Bryce read that. Wayne, yeah, and he turned it down because he didn't like seeing so many innocent people being killed at the end of the film. Not just the German officers, but their uh, their women. Mm. Okay, their wives and yeah, yeah. When Marvin read the script, he goes, "I got no problem with that at all." You know, it's wow. kind of if they're if they're so innocent, what are they doing hanging around with Nazis? You know. I mean, the only way they could have made that scene worse is, is by oh gosh, you know, yeah. having kids. God, they there. didn't, yeah. Because <laughs> that's one thing that's, that sticks mm -hmm. with me. Like, I'm like, that ending there, you know, herding them all into that small area, then, you know, setting them on fire is very, very shocking. But then. And once again, once again, you want to talk about a metaphor? What did the Germans do to the Jews? I, that's exactly what I was just about to say. You know, it's 
you know, it's not an accident. There's an allegory there. Yeah. When he tells Richard Bowen to get the gasoline and Bowen questions it, he goes, gasoline, are you sure, sir? And Marvin, uh, you know, shouts at him. You want to ask Pinkley and Vladek? Now get going. Mm. They had just been killed. Ah, oh, yes, of course. You know, the, sniper, the snipers had just yeah. killed them. And it's his way of saying, look, they're killing us. We got to kill them. I mean, we should probably talk about that scene because that wasn't, you know, initially the plan, was it? That they, they weren't going to head them all no. down there and pour gasoline on them. But when they get locked in, Bronson says to Marvin, you didn't think about that, did you? And Marvin goes, they got to breathe, don't they? <laughs> yeah it's almost yeah. as if he had in mind yeah thinking on their feet <laughs> action line isn't it yeah absolutely the, the shot again it's it's one of those sort of um bird's eye view shots oh my god that shot of jim brown dropping the grenades in and he's smiling and giggling that some of those are the most powerful parts of that yeah, scene and when bronson empties the gas tank and he's smiling and he tosses it in the air like a, a like a toy balloon it's, a, you know, it's as if they're saying, we're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to mm. really enjoy this. It's, yeah. it's so sick. <laughs> it's like their sadistic side comes out. You know, we, we, it's the subtle reminders every now and then that they are criminals. You know, they are not, you know, they're not like you and me sort of thing. Yeah, they're, right. they're psychopaths, some of them. It almost I mean, gives away why they were chosen, because they were able to do this. <laughs> goes back to what I asked before. Yeah. They don't have that moral thing. I mean, there there is precedent during the war of of gasoline being used um, on holdouts that wouldn't come out of um, situations like that. Um, yeah, on the Japanese islands. That scene to me, the whole chateau sequence. We mentioned earlier the Suicide Squad, but obviously another film that it massively sort of inspires. Um, Inglorious Bastards. Inglorious Bastards. That whole climax of that movie is is yeah. sort of a pastiche, really, isn't it? Of the Dirty Dozen's climax, the theater matching the opulence of the chateau, but it's the method of killing the Nazis, the the fire from the, you know, the burning film. It's it's a I suppose it's a nice homage, really. Absolutely, it is. The amount of other projects the Dirty Dozen inspired is a very very long list. I mentioned a moment ago the Glory, uh, the Devil's Brigade, the TV show The A Team. Uh, yes. Um, yeah. Oh my gosh, so many off the top of my head. I can't, well, Suicide Squad, as you just mentioned, but there were so many more. Force 10 from Navarone. Force 10 from Navarone. There's a, a great man on a mission. And I don't know if you remember this or not or know about this, but there was a short term TV show, a short lived TV show in America a year after The Dirty Dozen was released. It was called Garrison's Gorillas. And it okay. was a it was, it was a spinoff from right. the TV show Combat. But the premise we love Combat was, on the show. <laughs> oh, so do I. I used to watch it with my dad. It was it was one of my favorite shows. It's so good. But that sh- that that premise in Garrison's Guerrillas was identical to Dirty Dozen. They had a main you know a main officer recruit all these hardened criminals to go on secret missions. I liked the show. I thought it was cool. Yeah, there's a there's a there was a short lived TV series of Dirty Dozen as well in the late eighties as well. Yes, there was. Yeah, yeah. Yes, starred uh, Ben Murphy. And I always thought it was funny when they did the TV uh, movie sequels. Marvin was in the first one, and then the next two, they brought back Telly Savalas. You know, yeah. you know, a whole different character, but you know, they brought him back. Me and Matt are doing that one next week, so we're really looking forward to sort of seeing the the big change. You know. <laughs> well, it's interesting. For my book, I was able to interview his son. Wonderful guy. Okay. Unfortunately, yeah, he passed away, but. He told me what his father really thought of the sequel. And I'm not going to tell you, you got to read the book because he has a great take about the sequel. And just to show you what a dirty dozen fan I am. Have you guys ever seen this? Oh, wow. For for the listeners, uh, Dwayne's holding up a vinyl of the soundtrack. Yes, indeed. And look look how they did a little drawing. Look at that. Very nice. (laughs) So they did. He, He sings the bramble bush, ladies and gentlemen. Of course, yeah. So I think that brings us on to final thoughts this week. I mean, Dwayne, you're you're our guest, please. Your your final thoughts on the Dirty Dozen. You know, it's a classic for a reason. And classics are classics because they've stood the test of time. Some movies you watch and you kind of cringe a little bit going, Ooh, did they really say that? Or did they really do that? Or that's hokey or that's lame. There's no, I don't think there's any sequence like that in The Dirty Dozen. Everything stands up and holds up well. 
Mm. And people like myself mm. who have seen it so many times, we still have questions about it. People ask, you know, how come they didn't show what happened to Clint Walker's character at the end of the film? Um, yeah, that's that's apparently one of my Clint Walker told me <laughs> that when he read the script initially, as they did in the book, he was going to have a sequence where he rips off most of his clothes and puts on war paint and does a war dance as he gets killed. But he oh, said wow. Robert Aldridge, Robert Aldridge had hired Jim Brown because of his ability as an athlete, and he figured if he's going to be running and runs runs like a son of a bitch. If he's going to be running, doing that, and highlighting that sequence, okay, they're not going to have time for the war dance. I mean, I'm kind of glad they didn't do that, really. <laughs> so am I. And you know Posey didn't make it, because when they do that crawl at the end, showing how everybody, showing that everybody who died, you see Clint Walker among them. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, yeah, my final yeah. thought. It's one hell of a movie. Mm. It's, it's probably, if it's not my top five, it's in my top ten favorites. And I've been a movie fan my whole life. Yeah. Is it your favorite war movie? Easy answer, yes, without question. There you go. <laughs> Thought it might be. <laughs> Matt, and your final thoughts? I really love the performances. I love Telly's psychopathic, absolutely detestable um, character. And I, I just love the fact that you can mm. sit there going, God, I hate this guy. And you know that's a good performance when you sit there and you 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 go, God, I hate Telly Sabalas because he's that scary in this movie. Um. I love Lee in it. I love Bronson. Um, I love Jim Brown. It's a great cast. And for me, it, it, it some of the scenes are a little long. Like you could trim some of the fat because it's 150 minutes long. That might be a controversial um, thing. And that might be something that I think some of the original reviews said, Dwayne, you mentioned that earlier, I think. Yeah, but, a couple of reviews I found said it was a, t- a tad long, but they could see where they were going with it sort of thing. Mm. And it's all a matter of opinion, but I got to tell you, I never thought that way about the movie. Mm. It's one of those movies where even though it runs almost three hours long, it doesn't feel that way to me. It feels like a 20 minute film. And then there are movies that are like an hour and a half. It feels like you've been watching it for days and mm. days. It it goes at such a great pace. <laughs> it's so well done. It is. It's it's well it's well um, it's well shot and it's beautifully directed with with some of those scenes and it launched you know a, a whole raft of antihero movies and Absolutely. men on a mission movies and. And and that whole sort of genre of obviously the men on a mission mm. movies beforehand, but this is the one that everyone sort of like thinks that he doesn't. And it's a it's a, it's a great movie, and I'm looking forward to covering the rest of the the franchise. Yeah, really. Yeah. Later this month. But yeah, so Rob, what do you think? To be fair, I mean, I first saw it when I was very young, and I enjoyed it. I rewatched it over Christmas last year, um, and I I think I was either just a bit too tired or you know had maybe one too few too many beers but i thought it was a bit long and then right. i rewatched it obviously for, for the show uh, initially i was like oh struggling to get to, from scene to scene but i went back and i watched individual scenes on their own to analyze them a little bit more for the show and i i've mellowed on my my opinion because you know i think actually technically it's really well done you know it's written really well everyone's putting in 110 percent it's just me personally, I think I don't like an overly long film, but obviously the way that I consume films as a 27-year-old is completely different to how someone consumed movies back in 67. Right. So that's just, it's just a matter of opinion for me. But you can't not love the film, I think. It's just, it's one of those classics. Everyone loves it. Lee Marvin's just so likeable. You know, it, there's, there's, it, it's just, there's a, something for everyone in that film, I think. It's just, it's just one of those. I think the fact that it's, repeated on tv so frequently still is. yeah i mean there's a, a testament cha- to it as well a channel over Great here time. our listeners will know it's itv4 and they play it i mean it must be every other week really i think yeah yeah there's a cable station here in the states called turner classic movies it's oh, by, yes. ted turner, by ted turner they show it at least once every month or two yeah yeah um i'm guessing it's one of ted turner's favorite films it must that's be. why they showed it and you know everyone always sort of is excited <laughs> about talking about it and hearing about it and it always gets, you know, the fact is still getting referenced now in the movie industry, you know, as I said, with James Gunn talking about it. And that just shows you how much of an impact it's made. We're celebrating Dirty Dozen December with a unique custom design t-shirt featuring none other than Lee Marvin's iconic character. What could bring more festive cheer than Lee Marvin in a Santa hat, grease gun in hand? Pick up yours today over at fightingonfilm.com.
if I may, I'd like to I'd like to end with just one anecdote, which sure. is very very true. My best friend and I, when we were growing. As I said earlier, when uh, home video came out in the 19- late 70s, early 80s, one of the first movies I bought was The Dirty Dozen. And if we didn't have anything going on that night, my buddy Mike would call me up <clears throat> and say, what are you doing? And I would say, not much. And he'd say, you want to watch The Dirty Dozen? And he'd come over and we'd watch it. And it got to the point, I'm not exaggerating this, it got to the point where he would call me and he wouldn't say anything. I would pick up the phone and I would hear somebody go, and I would go, all right, come on over. I love it. And we'd watch the dirty dozen. <laughs> Thanks everyone for listening. And Dwayne, thank you so much for, for joining us. Your insight's been absolutely phenomenal. Um, and if anyone is looking for a Christmas gift, please consider getting the film fan in your life, Dwayne's book, Lee Marvin's Point Blank. Um, I think it'll be a, a great little stocking filler. Uh, and thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. And just so you know, anybody wants to know more, I didn't give away uh, that much about the making of the Dirty Dozen. There's a whole lot more I'm finding out every day. And if you want to know about it, get Killing General. Yes, please do. Coming out soon. Well, we'll have to have you back on when it comes out, Dwayne. You can give us the inside line. I'd love to be on. Thank you. And uh, and yes, uh, catch us next week, everyone, when we'll be tackling Dirty Dozen, the next mission. Happy Christmas, everybody, and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.